When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, well, I, I, my, my uh, appreciation of Joe Bob Briggs goes way back. And I honestly, I don't even remember how people like us, I was uh, in Philadelphia going to um, amazing grindhouse double features at theaters like the Goldman. Um, somehow, this was pre-internet, we became aware of this great drive-in critic from down in Texas. I, I don't know where we got a hold of your reviews, but you were this kind of legendary uh, character. And then uh, I remember in 88, um, Joe Bob goes to the drive-in, uh, came out, which was, um, a Holy Bible for many of us. Uh, and it, I'm really frustrated. I was looking around for it the other day. I have not picked it up in many years and I can't find it anywhere in my house. And I went, ah, oh, I'll, I'll go, uh, I'll go get a new one on Amazon. And, um, uh, Joe Bob, it's been out of print for years and it goes for $400 on Amazon. You have to, you have to put it back into print. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think a few months ago it would have been uh, $20 or, or, or $4 or $3. Uh, they have some kind of algorithm on there. <laughs> when when people start searching, the price uh, skyrockets. Uh, oh, because of the shutter. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, well, let me. I, I'll officially introduce our, our guest. He's the legendary uh, Joe Bob Briggs, um, recently, uh, who recently broke the internet. Um, when he came to Shutter uh, to run the last drive-in and has done it again, and apparently you're going to be doing these things on the regular, so uh, that's that's wonderful. Hi, I'm Josh Olson. You're listening to the Movies That Made Me, the official podcast of Trailers from Hell. My, my personal history um, is that uh, in the 90s, I was writing shitty straight-to-video movies um, by day and scrambling to write respectable studio features by night. And in the middle of all that, I got fed up of writing, um, you know, uh, uh, Eric Roberts thrillers and sat down and wrote a movie that I intended to make for no money that was essentially a, a horror remake of The Big Chill. A producer friend saw a short I had made, loved it, and actually helped me raise a real budget, something close to a million dollars. We made the movie. Um, it was a it was a wonderful experience. I directed it. We had a great cast. And uh, then that thing happened where you have an independent film and you're trying to get distribution, and now you just sit and wait. And we sent screeners out to everybody and nobody was getting back to us because we were too small, I think, to even bother with. And then 9-11 happened. Um, and I remember a few weeks and our older listeners, <laughs> Joe, is it terrifying that our older listeners? We are, we are our older listeners. I have listeners. to remember. Um, but, uh, and Joe, Bob, I'm sure you remember, there were all these conversations after 9-11 about whether or not, you know, is irony dead? Um, where do we go from here? Yeah, that lasted about two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the middle of those two minutes, I went out drinking one night um, to a legendary go-go bar named Jumbo's Clown Room in Los Angeles with my friend Tony Ortega, who was a writer at the time for the LA New Times. And we met a dancer that night um, who was having an existential crisis. She had just taken a stage name Mecca and was deeply concerned that perhaps this was a bad thing to have done. We spent most of the evening convincing her bad before nine 11. <laughs> I think you're right. Um, I think we finally convinced her that no one was going to fly an airplane into jumbos. Um, but it was a wonderful night. We spent the evening talking about irony and what the world's going to look like. And um, Tony wrote a nice thought piece for the paper. And in it, he mentioned that I had written and directed a movie called infested, that was sort of an unofficial horror remake of The Big Chill. And I think that was about all it said. 
And then I guess somehow you uh, you read the article and got in touch with the editor of the paper. And I got the message that Joe Bob would like to see the movie. Um, you know, we make movies for all kinds of reasons and all kinds of people, obviously, first and foremost, to please ourselves. Um, for something like Infested, I really, I'm not joking. I made it for two people outside of myself. One was my friend Chris King, uh, who I used to go to all these cheap grindhouse movies with in Philadelphia. And the other was Joe Bob Briggs. So we sent you the screener. And I got this amazing email back saying how much you would enjoy the film and you knew it hadn't been released yet, but would it be all right if you reviewed it? I said, sure, write a review. You wrote an amazing review. Uh, you, <laughs> you were so kind to the film. I've, I've never, um, just it, at, at the very end when you're wrapping up all the kind of gore and, uh, uh, fly cam, head rolls, twitching torso, a zombie exploding house, one motor vehicle chase, gratuitous bump dancing. Um, but you ended up with, yeah. I, yeah. yeah. But ahead. it ended up with, and Josh Olson, the writer director for doing things, the drive-in way four stars, Joe Bob says, check it out. I lost my mind. I was so happy. And then what happened is my producer got a phone call from a guy over at Sony who had read the review and said, Hey, this sounds great. I'd love to see it. My producer went, then put it on your DVD player. You've had it for three weeks. The guy watched the film and we had a deal 48 hours later. Um, so that was you, uh, that, that would not have happened without you. So why do, uh, I, you know, why do I remember it as being on a crappy VHS tape? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it probably was. <laughs> no, but, I remember the movie. Yeah, it was a fun movie. It was a very fun movie. Uh, you should be proud of that movie. Did you ever make any money on it? Uh, I, I never, well, no, you know what? The, the WGA did a weird thing a few years ago where they started collecting residuals on non WGA films. I was not in the union when I made it. And about 10 years ago, I got a check for $38. Um, so oh, I made some okay. money <laughs> in the black and, uh, you're the last one they pay, right? You what? <laughs> it's in the black because you're the last one they pay. That's right. right. Exactly. Uh, my composer gets checks still all the time. Those guys. And where's Joe Bob's check? Uh, I, well, Joe Bob's check is in the mail. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to take this moment to thank you publicly. Um, cause that was just one of the greatest things ever. And, uh, it just, it just made my day that you enjoy the film, let alone that it led to all that. Um, so that's my huge long introduction out of the way. Uh, Joe Bob, we are thrilled to have you here at the movies that made me. And yeah, as, as Joe said, um, we, we like to kind of get at our guests from a different angle, kind of talk to them about stuff they don't normally get a chance to talk about. I, I have this theory. I always worry about Trent Reznor. Um, I worry about what happens when Trent Reznor wakes up one day and wants to sing a happy song. It's like, where does he go with that? I have no idea. So we try to provide that outlet um, for, you know, what happens when Joe Bob Briggs likes a great foreign film. What do you do with that? Right. Well, let me let me address one thing you already said. You sure. said you were writing these crappy Eric Roberts uh, yeah. uh, thrillers in the 90s. Mm -hmm. You know, well, first of all, I loved all those crappy Eric Roberts thrillers. You never <laughs> reviewed mine. And, and, and secondly, there was yet another level, which was the crappy Andrew Stevens thriller. Oh, I worked with some of those. <laughs> which I liked even more. Um, yeah, so, they were better. Uh, you could have been writing those. I, no, no, I did. I did. I mean, I was, um, uh, I did a Mark Dacascos film. Uh, I did two pictures with Mark Lester. I did rewrites. I can't remember the name, but it was a, it was a Shannon Tweed thing that I think, uh, Andrew Stevens produced or directed. Um, she's a, I think Shannon she's a Tweed superstar in my world. For, in hell the, yeah. In the, no, absolutely. In the early nineties. I mean, um, uh, there's, there's a, there's a funny story where the, yeah, did Paramount bought Blockbuster or something, or they, they merged or something. And, and at the first meeting between the Paramount guys and the Blockbuster guys, um, uh, Blockbuster had their list of what kind of movies they wanted Paramount to make that they could, you know, the high, high rental movies. 
and they had Shannon Tweed at the top of their <laughs> at the top of their A list, and the Paramount guys didn't really know who she was, or they'd vaguely heard of her. And there was this awkward meeting at some place in Florida between you know where they were supposed to be uh, shaking hands on their new uh, on their on their big new merger, and so <laughs> and so. But that's the story of my life. I'm always I'm always talking about people that you know half the world hasn't un- hasn't uh, heard of. So, right. Anyway. Well, the, the so problem anyway, the problem in the nineties. There's, there's a whole world yeah. that appreciates those films you wrote. I I oh I I know it. I just I guess what was frustrating for me was that in the nineties when I broke into that I had this hope that these guys would be smart enough to be uh, uh, to to take the Corman approach, which Joe knows a thing or two about, which um, was you know seemed to be to give filmmakers a certain amount of freedom within the parameters of car chases and breasts and head explosions. And, and they didn't, they were, by the time I got to that business, they were as serious about it as any studio exec. So any attempt to kind of inject, you know, humor or demented social commentary, they just, they just stomped on. It was a, it was kind of a frustrating world. I remember once going to the American film market. I'm sure you've been there. Have you ever been down there? Oh yeah. And I mean, it's an amazing thing. We should, I'd love to take a camera. Should do a remote there. from there. Yeah, a remote from AFM. Oh my god, that'd be great. You walk around there; are these movie posters for real movies, many of which are not made. Many of which aren't made, and many of which are, but will never play here. And and it's amazing to find that all these, you know, Eric Roberts is—he's got five hundred and seventy-three credits or something like that. I mean, these guys making constantly films that will never play here. But I walked down one hallway at AFM one day and passed by three different rooms, and each one had a poster for a movie I'd written. And, and I, I have to get out of here was my, <laughs> well, I, you know, it was even worse in the old days. It was even worse at the can film market where, um, Canon films alone would announce 300 films right? And, and, and each film would have a full page poster in the weekly variety, you know, that they published at the, at the, at the festival. And it was and, really uh, heavy, really many pages in that variety. It was like a, oh, yeah. a big binder. <laughs> And uh, I, I think uh, you know maybe maybe they would make three of the three hundred films. Uh, you know, you, you never knew what they were up to, but uh, you knew it was you, you, you knew it was sleazy. <laughs> well, I love the weird. The one that always gets me is uh, the sequel to Joe, the Peter Boyle film. Remember, they were going to make Citizen Joe. That's right. I've, I have no idea where you go from the end of that film, but. Uh, Maybe he runs for president. Well, there were four Billy Jacks, you know, <laughs> you could do that. <laughs> uh, well, where, where do you go for that kind of stuff now? It's so hard to, uh, I, I, like, who's making those movies in a way that we can see them in 2018? Oddly enough, um, uh, people who are uh, indie guys who are, highly educated and steeped in the eighties, um, want to make eighties style movies. Now I don't really understand this concept, but, uh, <laughs> but I, but I run into these guys all the time, you know, uh, it's going to be just like the eighties going to be one of those sorority house massacre type things. It's from, you know, from the eighties. And, and this is a guy, this is like a good filmmaker. This is not a, it's not a, 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 you know, a, a, a piker. He's been to film school, you know, he, he knows what he's doing and this is what he wants to do, you know? And so, um, I'm like, uh, you know, that's, that's probably going to look kind of derivative. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you might be better off doing a, doing a story set in 2018, you know, and, uh, you know, finding a new, finding a new theme, you know, but that's what they want to do. They just revere, um, they revere the, to some extent the seventies, but mostly the eighties as, as a golden age. I think it's and, because um, these guys basically want to go back to their childhood. Yeah. They're so 12. They, they want to, they want to make the movies that they loved when they were kids. And we're seeing that now with the uh, other eighties, the family kind of 80 movie is now yeah. stranger things. And, and, all, and that, that, that teenage scientist genre is now back because uh, those people remember uh, what those things were like when they were kids and how much they liked them. It's my generation for my generation. It was the fifties. Um, yeah. we, we, we went back to the fifties cause that's, we were kids during the fifties and Spielberg and Lucas, you know, 
uh, are, are of that generation. But they went back even further. They went to the 50s, but they went to old serials from the 30s that they had seen on television in the 50s. So it's, it's all about getting in touch with your nostalgia and trying to do something that is, brings you back to when you really loved movies. And if it's a sorority house massacre kind of movie that turned you on, then, then that's what still turns you on. It's whatever you loved when you were 12, I think. Is the... Yeah, that's true as long as they're not just rank imitations. And yeah. so, and so there's certain guys, you know, there's certain ones that work and certain, certain of them that don't work. Um, you know, I, I thought House of the Devil was a brilliant one. Um, you know, it was an 80s movie that was sort of, you know, contemporized. But, but um, um, uh, most of them, uh, you know, most of them fall back on uh, humor as a way to um, disguise the fact <laughs> that that they haven't really scared you that much, you know the horror films, you know. Yeah, that that, they that's, haven't, that's what I was doing with Infested. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> they haven't really reached deep down into the elemental things that yeah. might scare you. They, you know, they've they've started relying on one-liners, and so, yeah. um, but. Uh, but that's where it's coming from. It's coming from, uh, you know, uh, film school guys and, you know, guys who get these uh, quickie deals on, you know, quickie streaming deals. Um, um, and uh, uh, I go to indie film festivals all the time. You know, how, how much did you spend on this film? $20,000. Oh, how much did you really spend? Well, I got all this stuff free. Okay, well, how much would it cost if it, you know, and it's still, when you add up all the costs, it's still like they're making these movies for under $50,000 or under $40,000. And and the problems with the films are not uh, production value. The, the production values look great. Yeah. Problems are story. <laughs> you know? Yeah. The problems are the things that don't cost any money. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, but they always, you know, they claim poverty. You know, we didn't have enough money. Yeah. Well, you don't have money to write the script. <laughs> so, um, Oh God, um, I, you just, I had this meeting years ago. It was after infested. It was at AFM. It was some horror producer somehow reached out to me. They had seen the film. They really loved it. Um, they were making movies for slightly more money than we had. And they wanted to talk to me about what it was we had done to get the cast we got, which was, it wasn't a giant cast, but it was all people you recognize. And, uh, um, Zach Galligan from, uh, Gremlins, for instance, Joe, um, Amy Joe Johnson, people like that. And they showed me clips from a couple of the films they had made that they had tried to get name actors in. And I mean, you know, it was, they were, they were, I don't even want to say torture porn. They were just these like rape murder movies with you're watching it and going, who, no one's going to sign up for this film. There's no plot. It's just women having their clothes torn off and they're being chopped to pieces. So I think, I think I understand why you're not getting name talent for, for your movies. And you're right. Yeah. They, they had the money. They just didn't have any. Well, that's money. that. And that's a whole nother subculture. The Gorehounds, I yeah. mean, the Gorehounds are just interested in the, in the effects. Um, uh, and that sometimes seeps over into, <laughs> into the bigger budget films where, um, um, where, they they really are trying to, you know, have a a uh, a shocking gore effect every four minutes or something, right. you know. And, and, and um, you're not a true horror fan if you can't tell them what your favorite kill scene is. Right. <laughs> as, as the, um. Well, anyway, yeah, you you said uh, you would uh, you had some thoughts as to films that are kind of outside the realm of what people associate with you. Well, look, you, you I mean, your 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 theory on these shows is what what films made us. And I was trying to think of stuff that I watched over and over when I was a kid. And, you know, and the film I came up with is really, really embarrassing. It's just mm. one of the worst ever made and i did watch it repeatedly and it's the 1962 version of the movie state fair our state fair is a great state fair don't miss it don't even be late it's dollars to donuts that our state fair is the best state fair in our state in the grandest tradition of rogers and hammerstein 20th Century Fox fills the screen with delightful freshness, the newest kind of entertainment, and these great young stars. Pat Boone, as you've never seen him before. I know what I like, and I liked what I saw, 
And I said to myself Yeah, that's for me And Pat <laughs> <laughs> Boone And Margaret And Bobby Darren and when I was a kid, I just thought this was the greatest movie ever. It was set at the Texas State Fair. The previous two, they made the State Fair was made three times, believe it or not. What? The previous two were the Iowa State Fair. Um, and and uh, you know it has one you know it has a, a, a hysterically funny pigs you know pig scene <laughs> and it's and it has all these hokey songs. And, um, uh, there was something about, you know, it was, it was first of all, you know, hormonal kid and Margaret in her prime, well, sure. you know, there's that, there's that aspect, but Pat Boone, I don't understand the Pat Boone part. <laughs> um, I don't think, I think it was a huge flop. I think it was only, um, only a few of us that, that, that liked it at all, but it was just this wacky musical. I don't even think they went to the Texas state fair. I just, I think they, I think the whole thing. I was a Texas kid, but I think they just, I think it was filmed all, uh, you know, somewhere in California. Uh, but, uh, but there's that one. I, I don't know what that means about me. You know, but, but, I uh, didn't. So, Joe, are you? I Joe, are bucolic. It's a, it's a, it's a bucolic choice. Do you know who directed it, Joe? <laughs> Is it Henry King or somebody like Jose that? Ferrer. Jose Ferrer. Jose yeah. Ferrer. Wow. That's He usually did grittier stuff than that. And there are there are two other versions of it: Janet Gaynor and Will Rogers, and uh, Gene Crane and Dana Andrews. I've I've never seen any of them. Have you? Maybe that's the Henry King one. Rogers and Hammerstein um, uh, score. Uh, uh, I guess uh, I I don't think it was ever on stage, so it must have been something they just, or maybe it was. I don't know, but it's um, uh, uh, one of their lesser scores. I don't think it's often. Re- re- uh, performed in concert. So, um, anyway, that's, uh, that's probably the most embarrassing movie that I became. Uh, so did you into- go out, did you go back and see it more than once in a theater? Uh, yeah, because they, uh, it would come back. I don't know why it would come back because, you know, in the sixties you couldn't really, um, I, they must've been showing it on TV a lot. Cause I can remember seeing it numerous times. Um, uh, there was now, um, more to the, more to the point, the, 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 I was, I, I was at a, um, I was at a film festival in, uh, Chattanooga, uh, a couple of years ago and I was on a panel and they asked me, um, what was the strangest movie you ever saw that you liked? And I said, um, well, I can't remember the name of it, um, but I just remember people calling it the pig fucking movie. And uh, and uh, somebody in the audience goes, Vasa de Noces. Somebody just yells out, oh, the pig fucking movie? Vasa de Noces. <laughs> I said, man, you really know your Belgian films. <laughs> and he says, you know, and so, um, but there is this, there is this really disgusting movie from the early seventies. The Belgians are, first of all, let's talk about the Belgians. The Belgians are weird. The Belgians <laughs> are just extremely strange. The actors who come out of there, the directors who come out of there, the movies they make. We had a movie on the marathon last summer called Daughters of Darkness. One of the strangest artsy fartsy horror films ever made. Harry Kumar. Probably the only successful horror film ever to come out of Belgium. But, um, so anyway, there's this, there's this movie called the, the, sometimes they translate the English title as wedding trough. And bestiality and they cut but they don't call it bestiality. They call it, in in Belgium, they call it zoophilia. 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 It's a real thing. Yeah. yeah. Zoophilia, which it sounds like sex with zoo animals. I don't know, yes. but a pig is not a zoo animal, so I, I don't know what that means. Um, also, uh, another alternate title it had was "One Man and His Pig," <laughs> and, and it is explicitly shows, um, you know, things you really could go through life and hope that you never saw. <laughs> <laughs> it's only got one. He's. It's just one actor. Everybody else yeah, is a pig. It, 
it's it it's it, it's it's so it's trying hard to be avant-garde, but it had an exploitation campaign, which is why I saw it. Um, and uh, uh, and I I've found very few people that have seen it, but but this one guy in uh, I saw it on this big screen, you know, which you should not. <laughs> <laughs> but this one guy in Chattanooga, Tennessee was like, oh, that's Vasa de Nose. <laughs> like, so apparently, apparently certain people have watched it a lot. Well known, <laughs> well known to the underground of pig fuckers. Wow. I'm just, I'm just, can I, I I'm looking at it on the IMDB. I had never heard of this. Um, <laughs> they've got it classified as horror, comma, romance. <laughs> <laughs> If Petunia pig. Is romance, this is it. <laughs> well, I, so wait, where where did you see this? Chattanooga. Oh, you saw the? No, I thought they'd asked him. No, no, no. I was talking about it in Chattanooga. Yeah, yeah. I saw it, uh, years and years ago um, at the um, at an at an art theater in Dallas when I was a critic, and um, the um, uh, you know in Dallas at that time you know, one foreign film a week would make it to Dallas. I mean, it wasn't a big hotbed of... And Wedding Trough film. was the one that made it that <laughs> And so some some <laughs> enterprising theater manager decided that Wedding Trough was the film. <laughs> and so... And so... And, and I remember going to the screening, and he, he said, yeah, they call this, you know, yeah, I've got this pig-fucking movie. He called it the pig-fucking movie. <laughs> And I was like, but yeah, but there's not really a guy fucking a pig in it, is there? And he said, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's the pig. Why you call it? And yeah, it comes from Belgium. Yeah, yeah. they do that in Belgium. Didn't, <laughs> why did, didn't the Belgians make man Belgium, bites dog? Belgians are like French rednecks, you know. And so, and so, uh, their their stuff is more interesting. Joe, you were asking. I was saying, didn't the Belgians make Man Bites Dog? You know, the serial killer movie? I think, yeah, I yeah, think you're right. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that, is, that, that is a horror movie. What is going on over there? Yeah, Jean-Claude Van Damme. What, are, what else are they responsible for? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wedding, I have to find Wedding Trough now. Belgian chocolate. We will find Wedding Trough. <laughs> it will happen. Yeah. Um, wow. So I, yeah, you mentioned when we talked that, that, um, you know, there, there, there was only a th one theater, uh, that got foreign films. I, I sort of expected that you'd be talking about things like, you know, Amarcord and citizen <laughs> investigation of a citizen above suspicion, but we, you got wedding trough. I, I can talk about a really good film. Oh, that, well, that's... <laughs> you know, when, when, when I, when I was the, when I was the film critic, I, the things I, the, the films I did not like were the Hollywood mainstream films. I liked the, uh, exploitation films and I liked the, um, foreign films. And so, um, there was this, I went to the Cannes film festival one year and there was this, uh, film called YOL, Y O L. Okay. And it's a Turkish film about, Life in Turkish prisons. Remember how scary Midnight Express was? Sure. This is sort of the real Midnight Express made by Turks about their own prisons. And it was just rivetingly depressing. <laughs> it, was, it was like you could not take your eyes off of it. It was um, kind, of an, uh, kind of a four-part. It tells the story of these four prisoners who get furloughed, but then they go back into prison. And, and it's just relentlessly, um, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's just, it just had this power, you know, how you, you're watching something that's, that's, that's horrible, but you can't stop watching it. And, and so it's, it sort of rises to the level of art. That's what this was. YOL, Y-O-L. And I came back to the States and I was like, well, when's YOL coming? And it's like, no, no one releases Turkish films. What do you mean? It's this Turkish film. You know, nobody releases those. I called the specialty distributors, you know. You heard this film, Yol? Nope, never heard of it. Well, it's a really good film. It's a, It was at Cannes and, you know. No, you know. And so uh, I talked to the um, um, local theater manager 
who uh, Bob Burney, who who is now now runs Amazon um, uh, theatrical division. But mm-hmm. I, I talked to Bob and he said um, he said, well, you know, you, you want to review it? I'll 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 find it and and book it. And so so Bob called over to Turkey and found whoever had the film. And we got the only print, you know, ever sent to America and ran it in the theater. And we had like actually good crowds for it um, uh, because I, you know, did the did a big review about it. But um, I've I, over the years, I've said, have you ever seen Yol? <laughs> Y-O-L. It's a, could have done better with a better title. Um, but, um, uh, uh, that, uh, that film, uh, uh, I still remember it today as being one of the most powerful emotional experiences I've ever had, but all bad. You know, <laughs> all, I never want to go to Turkey. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, actually, it sounds uh, like, you know, it got, I was just looking, it got nominated for a golden globe. So I, I pretty, pretty clear you had something to do with that. Well, it must have it must have eventually played New York or something, you know, because. Uh, um, but um, uh, well, the Golden Globes that, that, that's the that's the foreign film critics, right? Yeah. So they would all know about it, but but um, you know, but it, I, I I don't think it I don't think it charted in America. That's <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I don't know why I'm feeling more of a, a yen to see the pig fucking movie. Um. <laughs> just the kind of guy you are. I just, I, 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 depressing movie. I just have not been enjoying depressing movies lately. Maybe it's the. Couldn't be the world around us, could it? No, the world around us is wonderful. <laughs> it's true we're in an escapism period, aren't we? We sure yeah. are. <laughs> I, meet, I meet so many people who say, um, if, if you even say a, a, any kind of political code word, whether from the right or the left, you know, doesn't they just go, I don't do politics. I don't do politics. I do horror films. I don't do politics. <laughs> and, and I think one reason that we're seeing this renaissance of, um, of interest in horror is like horror is so safe compared to politics. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Whenever there's, whenever there's a, a, a period of unrest or tumult, there's always a lot of horror pictures. Yeah. Going back to the, the depression. That is true. Horror ends. Yeah, well, at least you're sitting in a theater and you know that you can get up and leave. That's all right. I keep trying to explain this to my wife. She does not like horror films. It's it's the, I don't know, it's it's the part where they're over that I would think. Well, some people it. just don't like to go there. You know? Yeah. But, when, but kids, on the other hand, uh, all those Final Destination movies, they think it's just the funniest thing in the world. Yeah. Uh, and, and counting the kills and how, how, how imaginative is the kill. And it's partly because they figure they're never going to die. They're kids. They're, their lives are, you know, way out <laughs> of them. True. You find a lot of, you know, find a lot of horror films run at the motion picture country home. I don't think. Uh, yes. <laughs> I had not thought of that. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Was, or call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Uh. <clears throat> well, I got one more for you guys. Great. Um, you've probably seen this one, but um, uh, the movie Beckett from oh. 1964. It happened in Canterbury, England, eight centuries ago. A story as ageless as time itself. The immortal story of a man called Beckett, who earned a king's most trusted friendship. Business, my lord. 
who shared his most intimate secrets. I must say I adore my French possessions. They're certainly worth recapturing. Until Beckett the man was made a bishop and his king lost him to God. Oh, mainstream a, of you. Yeah, really. No <laughs> oh, mainstream of you, Joe Bob. Well, do you, you think it's mainstream? It was It was very British from a French play. Mm-hmm. It was existential. It was, you know, it's, it's, um, yeah, but it was classy. What, what fascinated me was, was the, the Peter O'Toole, I, I guess the story with, with, um, you know, for those who don't know, Peter O'Toole was Henry, the King Henry the second and, and, um, Richard Burton is Thomas Beckett. And they, they grow up as degenerates together, you know, drinking and whoring and, and, um, um, uh, uh, being assholes, and then Henry appoints Beckett the archbishop so he can get the church off his back, and then Beckett has a religious conversion and totally screws up his plan. So it's about the friendship between these two um, uh, jerks, and one of them becomes religious, and and it and it and it messes up their whole relationship. Um, but I thought it was just brilliantly acted, brilliantly directed, and and. Um, um, and I watched it like numerous times and it's about the most un-exploitation film ever. <laughs> uh, but I just, and that director, I never, I never heard of him again. I don't know where he went. Um, Peter Glenville. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, did he direct other movies? Because I, I did some other Shakespearean kind of things. Okay. Um, because, uh, that's the only thing I've ever heard, heard that he did, but, uh. Brian Trenchard Smith has a really great commentary on Beckett on Trailers from Hell. Yeah, great. Yeah, okay, it's, 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 he's really he's he's pretty thorough. I, I haven't seen that. One. I've seen the film. I have not seen oh. Brian's commentary. I'd I'd be interested, Joe Bob, because it, it's you know even even reading your stuff in the early days, um, I I there was something going on there where. Uh, I could connect to the point of view because I, I shared and even though I work in mainstream Hollywood, continue to share uh, your feelings about those movies. Um, what is it that appeals to you so much about those movies on the outsides of that? To the, uh, the or, or, or what is it that you think that, that doesn't compel you? I, I, I just be interested to hear you talk about kind of, sort of mainstream Hollywood and, and, uh, it's, Oh, well, I, I mean, the main thing is, um, uh, you know, it seems most, most of the projects are somehow compromised. I mean, they're, they're either compromised at the script level or the, or the choice of leading actor or, um, you know, you know, something waters it down into a, um, you know, not so much on the hits, on the ones that get lucky and the ones that make $500 million, but on, on the, on the run of the mill releases from, from week to week to week, um, you know, you can almost pinpoint, you know, exactly where they had a meeting that ruined the film. (laughs) It's like, like they've got the money, but they have meetings. (laughs) Movies by committee. Yeah. So there's nobody, there's nobody at the helm. Even the guy at the helm is not at the helm. And so, and so, uh, you know, you, you have these periods where, you know, there was a period when Dudley Moore was a superstar. Okay. So you're trying to fit stories to Dudley Moore, you know, it's like, who can do that? (laughs) That that was Um, a bizarre one to me because I was a huge fan of his work you know, in England with Peter Cook, I mean, Bedazzled is one of my favorite movies. And, and the Dudley Moore from the eighties bears <laughs> yeah. almost no resemblance whatsoever to the Dudley Moore from the sixties. It's Yeah. It's like Arthur was the worst thing that ever happened to him. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, I, 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 I mean, that's my theory. My theory is, is um, uh, too many cooks, cooks spoiling the pot. I mean, you, you would know better, Joe. I mean, um, you know, I, um, you know, you, you've worked in the low budget and the high budget. So it's a lot easier uh, to maintain your, uh, control on a low budget than it is on a high budget. 
because um, you know, and from their point of view, they're spending more money. They want to get it back. Uh, they want everybody to love the movie, and therefore, let's just knock off the edges and make everything kind of bland, so that no one will be offended. And you know that that doesn't that doesn't make for good movies. It makes for boring movies, and it almost they almost always cut their own throats when they homogenize uh, what could be done very well by somebody who they they hired for their talent, and then they tell them how to do it. And so it's like, well, what do you hired me for if you if you know how to do it? Yeah, I, th I think the reason the exploitation producers um, uh, don't meddle so much is that they're 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 trying to shock and and be rebels to begin with, and so they sort of want you to go places that you know uh, middle class America won't like. And so, and so, you know, they're certainly not going to object if you want to go more extreme with what you're doing. So, um, I, I, I don't, I don't know. You're, you're, you know, when I first started writing about exploitation films, there were all, there were like three of us that were doing that. <laughs> and, and, um, I would have these conversations with Roger Corman, who I, I know, you know, well, and, um, um, he would, I don't know if he was lying, but he would tell me, he would tell me, um, yeah, I, I tell the, I tell the director what basic elements have to be in the film. And he would, he would get very scientific about it. You know, he said, there must be three, uh, above the waist breast nudity scenes and with three, you know, four scenes with three actresses or something like that. And then there must be, you know, one motor vehicle chase. It must be within the first 15 minutes of the film. Anyway, he would give these, he would give these directions and then he would say others just do whatever you want to do. And so I thought, well, that's a fairly, that's a fairly fair deal where he gets all his exploitation elements, what he wants to put on the poster <laughs> and, and, and the director has a certain level of freedom. Um, that's, that's pretty much, that, that's pretty much the way it worked. Okay, well, good, <laughs> you know. And, you know, sometimes like, sometimes he would yeah. choose people who, uh, you know, had uh, really wanted to make a great movie out of whatever material they were given. And if it's the best woman in prison movie, then that's what they're going to do. Uh, and the, a lot of those people who did not look at the assignment as junk, they, they tried to make the best out of it, uh, they, they usually went on to, to bigger things. And then there were other people whose attitude was, this is really crappy stuff. And I'm not, I'm not going to knock myself out to do this. I'm just going to do the minimum job and get it done. And those people just never made it. They just ended up being subsumed into nothing um, because Roger had a great eye for people who really wanted to make it. And his favorite thing to say was, if you make two, two good movies for me, you'll never have to work for me again. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, I thought that was always, and, 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 you know, so many of those guys did take advantage of it. And, um, and, and, uh, those, and the films and even the films that were weak, <laughs> uh, but made by, you know, um, well, today's well-known directors, um, uh, you know, had, a, had a, had a craft to them. Uh, the, you know, the problem wasn't the direction. The problem was something else. Um, the, the problem was casting or the problem was a script or something, but, um, uh, yeah, I think that's, I, 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 I don't know why that's not applied at a higher level, you know, um, um, because, you know, we'd have, we'd have better movies today if it were, if it were, of course, every movie today is, you know, the top 10 movies last year were, um, uh, sequels and remakes, all 10 of them. <laughs> So, well, these guys are spending a lot of money, and uh, it costs a lot of money to make a picture. It costs even more money to release it, and they are and they're very conservative. And they figure, why should we try something new when we can get away with something that we've already done twenty times and still make a profit? Uh, and unfortunately, that just it, it the strain just starts to weaken as the as the pictures go on until finally you just get to a point where it's there's no blood left, you know, in 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 the stone. Yeah. I got to say though, my my own experience in both worlds was kind of the, I mentioned this earlier, but when I was doing straight to video stuff, the people who had come in were so serious about what they wanted that there was no room for any of the kind of Corman-esque uh, uh, joy 
and and then you know so far my my uh, only only really good studio experience was on history of violence where they left us alone from beginning to end i mean that that is the movie you know i did a draft david came on i wrote another draft we shot it and live or die if you like that movie that's us if you hate that movie that's us but the studio left it alone and was aware from beginning to end that this was the weirdest situation ever that this was not something that that happened frequently um and i i see that i haven't heard anybody tell that story about a studio film in a while unless it's you know paul thomas unless it's a david lynch movie or something right exactly (laughs) yeah yeah someone like that i i still i mean they gave how much was twin peaks the return do you think oh it's a lot of money I mean, they gave David Lynch a billion dollars in 18 hours to do whatever he wanted. That, that gives me some. And he went back to them and said it wasn't enough and they had to. Up it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then there's a triumph. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess if you're, if you're, if you're too weird to take notes, <laughs> you can, you you can have a reputation as being a guy who's too weird to, to, yeah. to, to listen to notes <laughs> and then that'll work in your favor. Oh boy, the notes are I just imagine something. Woody Allen is the same way. The notes are just something you just don't want to get. I mean, if you're if you're a studio, if you work for a studio, and part of your job is to give notes, then you it's like an, a homework assignment. Yeah. So you watch the stuff, and then you have to give notes, right? And and you give them because you need to fill up the page, not because you really care about anything. And so you get these notes, and and you have to go through them, and you just basically check off certain ones. You go, well, I guess I could do this. No, no, no. This is stupid. No, did he even see it? You know, it's it's um it's it's a minefield. And and they're so yeah, it's like people are fulfilling an assignment. They have to give X number of notes. There's a great story about um some some executive telling Jim Cameron that uh, uh, the Terminator should have a dog. Do you know the story? <laughs> no, but, no, but it's very common. So, the, and, and Cameron apparently, and this is one of the reasons he's successful. I think his response to to notes is always, "Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'll give that a shot," which is great. I need to learn that. I, I smile. You can see in my eyes that I want to kill you. It's a terrible thing. But apparently, a year later, the guy goes off to the screening of the film, and he comes up to Cameron afterwards, and he goes, "What? Uh, what, what happened to the dog?" And Jim goes, eh, "We tried it. It just didn't work." <laughs> or he could have said, "Well, he got distemper." <laughs> yeah. Well, I've I've also heard you know several directors say, um, I, "I'll make a deal with you. We'll shoot it both ways." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that that way that way lies madness. Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll make the decision in post. Yeah. You yeah. know that that means well, that means the the executives will make the decision in post and goodbye. Exactly. <laughs> Well, if he follows through and actually shoots it both ways, but they don't, they they can they can sort of like mess up the second way, you know. Uh, they can make it unappeal. They can make the second way unappealing. Or you could just shoot it out of focus and they can't use it. <laughs> right. Fix it in digital these days. Um, Joe Bob, is there a movie though? I mean, now after all that, is there, you know, a straight down the line? middle of the road, glossy, big budget, painfully dumb Hollywood movie that you can't help but love. Painfully dumb. Well, um, <laughs> well, I, do you call this a spinal tap of Hollywood movie? No, that's a, <laughs> no, it's an, it's an indie. <laughs> no, love, no, love, no. I, I want to hear like, you know, Forrest Gump or something. Like that. No, no, you don't, <laughs> you don't want to hear that. I, you know, you know, I, I have this theory about, you know, idiots, idiot savants from the South. You know, movies for savants from the South. There's a lot of them. Um, you know, Alan Arkin was one. one movie. That's right, Simon, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you're either a Forrest Gump person or you're a Sling Blade person. <laughs> yep. I'm a Sling Blade person. Any, uh, no, I, yeah, boy, big, big, uh, <laughs> big Hollywood movie that I, that I, that I, that I love. No, not really. I mean, it's just not me. Um, Bridget Jones diary. <laughs> I think, I think this is a fallow field. I, I think we're better off asking Joe Bob what, what are his favorite exploitation movies? Well, but that, that's the, thing. I mean, I, I, that's, 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 uh, that's yeah. dog bites, man. I, Joe Joe Bob loves Bridget Jones' Diary. Would be, uh, that would be. <laughs> is that a, that's a headline? That's a headline. 
that's all over the Twitters. It's, uh, <laughs> I love Renee Zellweger's first movie, ah, which, which was which was Return to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, also called Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The Next Generation, also called three or four other things. That's right. Each of us has known the fear of being alone, lost in the darkness, faced with the unknown. But there is one fear shrouded in our past, lost in our subconscious, that should never have been forgotten. A fear so deep, it cuts to the bone. The American legend returns to bring you back to the cutting edge of terror. Welcome to my world. Uh, with um, um, uh, Matthew McConaughey, right? Matthew McConaughey was, all, was also his first movie. And isn't, isn't and what, uh, Vigo in that? What's that? Isn't Vigo Mortensen in that as well? Or is he, no. He's another oh. one. Actually, um, uh, Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey are third and fourth billing. They're not even the the stars of it. But it was one reason I think it didn't get any attention and didn't get a wide release is I think I think uh, CAA worked hard to stop it. Oh right, because they <laughs> they hit while that movie was right. in the can. In the meantime, they had become stars. Yeah, the movie had not yet been released. Right, and um, I think their agencies. Um, uh, uh, worked assiduously to make sure <laughs> that that movie did not get w- widely circulated. I mean, I, I, you know, I can't prove it and probably be, you know, some kind of lawsuit if they did, but, <laughs> but, um, but it seemed like something weird happened <laughs> around that time. Uh, uh, I That's one I've always wanted to check out and have never gotten to, but is it, is it, uh, it's actually good. I actually like it a lot. I would say the fan base is is, is split on it. Um, a lot of them hate it, and, and some of them love it. But um, um, but Ma- Matthew McConaughey is really good. Uh, the story takes up uh, immediately after the end of the first movie. Um, it's written and directed by the screenwriter of the first movie, Kim Henkel, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, who wrote um, um, another great indie film called last night at the Alamo. Yes. Um, yes. That's... That was directed by Eagle Pinnell, uh, in the eighties. And, um, uh, uh, Kim, Kim is not an ambitious guy. And so he's never, um, he, he has, he hasn't made a lot of stuff in his life, but it's always high quality stuff. Everything he writes, everything he directs. Um, it's basically a teacher. He teaches uh, down in Corpus Christi, but he, Occasionally he surfaces and it's always something uh, amazing. So, um, uh, but I thought it was a very, very good film. Um, um, it just, it, I, I think it was suppressed. I really yeah. do think it's suppressed. Uh, well, I, I will definitely check it out. And I had to look here to make sure it wasn't going crazy. Vigo is actually in Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. <laughs> oh, that's the worst one of all. <laughs> Where, they go. Where, they, where, the, where there are high mountains in the background, which which don't exist in Texas. In Texas, yeah, yeah. I, I've only Vancouver. seen the um, uh, yeah. Well, interesting. Um, how, do you have anything else for us? Any any more kind of left of uh, movies we would not associate with Joe Bob? Uh wow. Um, uh, not really. I, pretty, I pretty, I stay pretty close to my sweet spots. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, um, I guess like what, what is a Joe Bob Briggs guilty pleasure? What, uh, what's, what's the movie you don't want anyone knowing you love? I guess you've told a state fair. Yeah. It seems. Okay, well, I'll tell you a general area where that's a guilty pleasure. Well, I used to think it was a guilty pleasure, but I like the I like the the, the really good Lifetime movie of the week. Okay? <laughs> and wow! Then, but then I was I was looking last week on this on the listings, and they had a premiere of a movie called Psycho Prom Queen, and oh. I thought, you know, that could be a Corman title sure. in the early '80s. You have to pass all of your subjects in order to attend prom. 
play teacher anymore. If you don't help me pass, I swear I will kill you. What is tonight? Ronnie! I'm so honored to accept this crown as your prom queen. And I wish you all the greatest success. <laughs> because if you really want it, you can have it. You know, it's like, it's like they actually do make exploitation. Those Lifetime movies actually, you know, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, that could be a, a Lifetime movie of the week, you know. It's like, it's not that weird that, uh, first of all, Lifetime Channel has a really uh, depraved view of women. <laughs> <laughs> the, the women on Lifetime are always, you know, either killers or they're psychotic or they're, you know, they're poisoners or they're, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it, in the I think in the early days of Lifetime, those characters were men. And then they discovered, you know, the ratings were better if those characters are women. And so and so they've developed this whole genre of killer women that uh that that, that you know it, it's like they're popcorn movies i mean they're they're like uh throwaway movies but uh i do like a lot of the stuff that they do they have great do. titles i mean uh uh what was it, was it mother a, mother may i play with danger mother may sleep, i sleep, sleep with, with danger. danger which by the way they remade did you know they did a remake no really <laughs> no i must confess i didn't know that <laughs> i don't know why i know that but uh yeah they remade mother may i sleep with danger um uh, yeah, well, I think there's something empowering to seeing, you know, uh, you know, images of yourself taking control, even if it means <laughs> chopping people's heads people. off. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. For sure. There's always the opening scene where the happy family is at the breakfast table, you know, and so, and so you know, this family is going to be destroyed by the yeah. <laughs> Time. Yep. Anything happy in the first scene is going to be absolutely eviscerated by the end of a lifetime movie. Did Did you ever see that um, that bizarre? Was it Will Ferrell and uh, um, was it they, they did a straight, absolutely straight lifetime movie for a lifetime starring Will Ferrell and I can't remember the actress, um, but everyone thought it was a gag. There were billboards all over town, and you watch it, and it was completely straight. Um. And you thought it was a parody and people thought it was a parody and, and it was operating on such a meta level. Um, am I the only one who remembers this? You and the IMDB. I've, I've got the IMDB. <laughs> Joe Bob's completely silent. No, I don't know. I mean, billboards all over town. I mean, oh, yeah, well, it, it, all it, over it, your town. Yes. Over <laughs> our that is, that is correct. That is correct. We have I'm, different, we have different billboards here. Yeah. Very different, different audience. I'm going to find it. What was it? Deadly adoption. Deadly Adoption? A Deadly Adoption starring Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig. Really? And uh, it was... That sounds like the kid is going to kill the parents. It's it's they take in um, a pregnant woman who is going to... I guess she's a surrogate. And uh, she turns out to be crazy, obsessive, and murderer type. And does she have a homicidal baby? Uh, no, no. I, don't, I, I think oh. the movie ends oh, so before it, she... Oh, so it's not a homicidal baby movie. Um, she does. That's get a whole you. genre under itself. Oh yeah, yes, yes. Oh yeah, you need Larry Cohen for that. Right. We do need Larry Cohen for this. <laughs> Indeed. Sound like they need Larry Cohen for this. Um, yeah, but it's it's worth checking out because you just keep waiting for it to break character and it never does. But uh, uh, well, well, there's a recommendation, folks. <laughs> Try to find that one. I enjoyed it very much. Um, uh, well, I guess my dreams of getting Joe Bob to express his love for Forrest Gump. I don't know why, uh, but, but maybe he doesn't love Forrest Gump. I know, I know. I, uh, I don't know anybody who loves Forrest Gump. I saw John Waters talk once several years back, and he talked about how um, I guess he was going through this thing where somebody had rented pink flamingos from a video store in the Midwest and had called the police halfway through the film. You could leave it to your imagination to figure out which scene it was. But he was cracking up. He said, I, um, but I remember he said, you know, I didn't know you could call the cops about a movie you had rented. He said, I wish I'd known that when I was watching Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every time I see that, every time I see that little clip of where he says, 
life is like a box of chocolates, whatever the quote is, you know, I just, I, I just want to strangle him. I mean, I just want to, you know, like, you know, go tattoo that on your grandma's butt, you know, <laughs> you know it's like, oh man, it's like, um, it's a movie for the bush years. Yes. Yes. It caught something. Uh, well, Joe Bob, thank you so very much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, it's, uh, thank you for having me. This was fun. It, it means a lot that you did it. I want to give a shout out to Chris Millsap who uh, uh, arranged this for us. It is a gigantic fan and has begged me to send him a copy of it the instant we're done. Um, and uh, uh, again, thank you. And when's your, um, when's your next Shutter event? Um, a very Joe Bob Christmas is oh. our Christmas marathon on December 21st, uh, Friday before Christmas. And what are you running? Uh, they don't let me tell uh, the yeah, title. You, oh, have, to, you okay. have to wait. Not, not what you might expect, uh, ah, but it's state a, fair. a Christmas. <laughs> yes, state fair. All three versions. <laughs> <laughs> and the pig fucking movie. Yes. You know, <laughs> it's the yin and the yang, state fair and pig fucking <laughs> And, wow. uh, Sarah meant for each it, other. It's nine Eastern, uh, six Pacific, because uh, we do them. We do them. Um, we do appointment TV, even though it's a streaming service. We br- we break all the streaming rules, and um, um, and uh, yeah, that's the next. That's the next big uh, uh, Shutter event. Cool. Uh, well, here's a question: If if would they let you show the pig fucking movie if you could find it? They probably would actually, um, because of course it's got you know, subtitles. Well, yeah, but we sh- we we showed a Takashi Miike movie uh-huh. uh, that was pretty. It was wow. pretty uh, extreme. Um, which one? Uh, Dead or Alive? Yeah, it oh, yeah. It doesn't matter which one with him. <laughs> which has that? Uh, They're all oh, extreme. Man, it has that enema scene. I, yeah. Oh boy, I just can't even. I, I, you know, I watched it one time because I had to, and, and I'll never watch it again. That, you know, that he, movie, he, though, the last that movie is the greatest ending of any movie in the history of film. Yeah, because it's just like completely incomprehensible, like all like many things. No, no, uh, go go back and look at the last five minutes. No, Takashi did. Uh, he did the last episode of Masters of Horror. That's right for Showtime and they refused to run it. Uh, and, and I remember, oh, wow. I, and it was a beauty as usual, it was beautifully photographed film, but it had incredibly grim stuff in it. And, uh, when I saw it, uh, I thought, well, you know, now I've seen this and I don't have to see it again. And then I thought, I thought about the guys who had to mix it <laughs> and how they had to watch this stuff over and over and over while doing the sound and wondering what she, I, I thought it was like a, the basis of a movie. What happens to the mixer? who sees the, the eviscerations in a Takashi Miike movie over and over and over. Does he go home and kill his parents or his wife or what? You know what I don't understand about Takashi Miike? If you, if you, if in, in the few interviews he's done, he speaks very little English apparently, but in the yeah. few interviews he's done, um, they say, where do you get your, you know, inspiration for these, you know, ideas and everything. He always says American horror films grew yeah. up on American horror films. It, did you watch him in reverse, you know, <laughs> dubbed in Lithuanian or something? Because we don't have this stuff in American horror films, you know. They're filtered <laughs> through his vision. It's, um, <laughs> I, I got to, uh, about a year and a half ago, got to interview him at the American Cinematheque, and I was incredibly excited to go, and he was lovely. But, yeah, you're correct. It, it's not only does he not speak any English, he speaks very slowly, we had a translator there, and in the 45 minutes I had, I maybe got to ask three questions. It was, <laughs> it was deeply frustrating. The Japanese are always are always saying, um, well, yeah, that's the most extreme thing I've ever seen, but it's not extreme enough for Japan. <laughs> <laughs> and they go three levels more, you know? Yeah. Well, they did bring us tentacle porn, so. Yeah. Let's do something that'll make this unreleasable in most cities of the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you well, got to admire you. it. Thank you, Joe Bob. Uh, yes, right. been an absolute Thanks. pleasure, sir. Um, good luck with the next one. Please try not to break the internet next time. And, <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. I appreciate it, guys. So right. long. Thank you. Um. That was for Joe. Uh, this is. <laughs> 
This is, uh, you just listened to our last episode of 2018. We're going to be taking a short break over the holidays, and then we're going to be back on January 8th with, I guess, our second season of the movies that made me. Um, we just like to thank everyone who's helped us put the show on. Um, Don Barrett, of course, our engineer, Mark Allen, Chris Millsap, Elizabeth Stanley, and uh, I guess first and foremost, all of our guests, right, Joe? We, we really appreciate them, and we really appreciate you for listening. Um, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you leave comments uh, on our iTunes page, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks with a whole new batch of the movies that make Send money. Our show was recorded in Hollywood, California, crossroads of the world. Official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson from Movies That Made My mom always said, life was like a box of chocolates. The views and opinions expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy or positions of the movies that made me, Trailers from Hell, Josh Olson, Joe Dante, Our Mothers, Our Fathers, or Dick Miller, who's finally making his obligatory cameo here. The world's best hitman. <laughs> Hiding undercover. I never let anything happen to us. A computer hacker in too deep with the mob. This ain't the whole program here. You give me my old man's whereabouts, I'll give you the other half of the file. One is on the run. The other is his last chance. Into the car, kid. Okay. You're here for the list too, right? Yep. They have it. What? Somebody's gotta pay. You need me. Get in the car. Somebody's gotta lose. And somebody's gotta take out the garbage. Starring Eric Roberts. Now, what makes you think I won't put two bullets in your head, crack open a beer, and call it a night, huh? Now, that's a saying star. Hitman's Run. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus... Tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.